Thank you so much, Dennis and Chrissy. I don't know where your mind goes when you hear a beautiful piece of music played so well. That's my favorite hymn, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And my mind goes to all kinds of places, but especially the beautiful scenery we enjoy in God's creation every day. I don't know why, but my mind goes to Yellowstone National Park. <laughs> That's where it goes when I hear beautiful music like that. Thinking about how God has faithful us in so many ways, these ways we take for granted, especially the beautiful creation we enjoy. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles turn to Acts chapter 9. I want to start with the bedrock conviction that I have. Maybe many of you shared this. Perhaps some of you don't. But I'm fairly convinced that most of us, most of the time, when it comes to our faith, we're doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can. The call of Jesus Christ, of course, requires much. He gave his life, and therefore, because he was spent for us, he calls us to be spent for him. And of course, the Christian faith is incredibly challenging when we think about his life, his teaching, the scriptures. It can be hard. But what makes it particularly hard is when you're going about your life and you're trying to be faithful to him and you're not looking for any trouble, at least most of you aren't, and yet trouble seems to come to you. There are people who get upset with you. They get angry with you and you're just trying to be faithful. You're just trying to do the right thing. And I wonder if that's what the early Christians felt. Because when you read the early pages of Acts, they're simply trying to do the right thing. They're trying to be faithful to God. They go to the temple to worship God because that's where you go to worship God. They're expressing their faith in God because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they give them a, God gives them ability to heal people. They weren't trying to cause a stink. They were trying to cause a commotion. But, you know, they helped people. They healed people. And, boy, that made some people really angry, people in power. And even though the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, these Christians couldn't help it. They had to tell the truth. They saw what Rome did to Jesus. They saw with their own eyes, these people of Jerusalem. And some of them, many of them, saw with their own eyes Jesus raised from the dead. And that changed everything. They couldn't get it out of their heart. Couldn't get it out of their mind. But if the enemies of God can do something so horrible and humiliating to Jesus, and yet God can correct their mistake and raise him from the dead. We are a people who have all the hope we need. In spite of the fact that these early Christians were persecuted for their faith. As a matter of fact, that's what happens. Even though they weren't looking for trouble, perhaps even trying to live out what Jesus taught, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. They were trying to bring the peace of God, and yet, time after time, these enemies of God began to persecute them. And it must have been a shock because these were not pagans 
that gave him a hard time. These are not outsiders that were making their life miserable. They were religious people. Watch out. When religious people have a sense of infallibility and they become zealous for the purpose of God, watch out. There was a man who had that as his modus operandi. His name was Saul. That was his Jewish name, his first name. His Roman name, which was his last name, was Paul. So if you were to combine his first and last name, Jewish and Roman, he would be Saul Paul. And this man, <coughs> this man was convinced that God was on his side, a zealot for what is right, to stamp out what he considered to be a huge threat to the people of God, to Israel. He was a heresy hunter. And in this zealous, righteous indignation, Saul Paul shows up in our story, and boy, the transformation that happened to him was revolutionary. I want to read his story, the conversion of Saul, or the prophetic calling of Paul, however you want to look at it, and scholars debate that, actually. And it's Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Arise, enter the city, and it should be told you what you must do. And the man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Indeed. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision that a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
And Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he's the Son of God. (laughs) And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and they were saying is this not he who in jerusalem destroyed those who call on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest but saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the jews who lived at damascus by proving that this jesus is the christ you can't find a more dramatic story of a 180 degree turn in someone's life indeed This is not only, you might say, the blueprint for what repentance looks like. This is indeed what Paul talks about in this letter to the 2 Corinthians. This is reconciliation. I know that's a fancy word, and it comes primarily from the Roman Empire, the military world. And that is, reconciliation is how you turn enemies into friends. And Rome had this agenda that they would not only conquer the world and try to keep peace by Roman law and justice, but they had this crazy idea that somehow they, as benevolent rulers, bringing in the glory of Rome to even imperial subjects, they believed that somehow they could turn all these conquered peoples, all these enemies, into friends. They would reconcile them by bringing the benefit of the Roman way of life to make their life better. Paul used that idea as he wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter there, and he's convinced that he's been given a ministry of reconciliation because God turned him, who was once an enemy, into a friend. And therefore, he believed every single one of us who have the light of Christ shining in our hearts, every single one of us who have bent the knee to Jesus Christ and swore allegiance to him to pursue his kingdom first and only his kingdom first, that we would therefore be ambassadors of peace, ambassadors of reconciliation, that we could turn the enemies of God into friends because that's what he's done for us. By the way, only God can turn enemies into friends. And we live in a world where there are a lot of enemies I mean, there are a lot of enemies around us from a variety of contexts in a variety of ways. And so there's something about Paul's experience and something about Ananias's courageous example that has drawn me into this pivotal moment of the story that can picture beautifully for us what it means to be one who reconciles, turns enemies into friends. In this story, it is filled with irony. Over and over again, it is ironic the way God works in Saul's life and in Ananias' life. I mean, the most obvious ironic happening is that 
Christians at this point weren't even called Christians. They were called members of the way. It was a Jewish sect within Judaism where these Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And what that means is you have a way of life now, a way of life of following him. And that word in Greek, way, is also the word for road. So isn't it ironic that Saul is on the road, he's on the way to Damascus to persecute people who belong to the way, and God decides this would be a great time to show up and change everything. So the resurrected Messiah while Saul is on the way. And by the way, let me just throw this in as an aside. I could preach a whole nother sermon about this, but I won't. So often we as Westerners think that life is about a destination. But you know, most of life happens along the way. Happens along the way. And it just so happens that on the way to Damascus, Saul, who is there to take Christ, uh, Jews who have affirmed the messiahship of Jesus, they belong to the way. He's going to take them into custody with the authority of the high priest, bring them to Jerusalem so they could be convicted and tried as heretics and probably punished, perhaps even killed like they did Stephen a few chapters before. But Saul, on the way, is about to have a life-altering experience. It is no coincidence that it's a light that shines from heaven, and it causes Saul to fall to the ground, and the voice ironically says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What Jesus should have said was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the way. But of course, we can't help but hear echoes from Matthew's gospel when Jesus taught, to the extent you do things to the least of these, you've done it to me. Scholars think this is where Paul gets his ecclesiology, this strange idea that somehow, somehow, some way, you and I are the body of Christ. So if something's done to one member, we've harmed Christ. If we help one another, we have aided and ministered to Christ. It's an amazing idea, isn't it? So here we are, the body of Christ, because Paul heard a voice say, this resurrected Messiah say, why are you persecuting me? Saul doesn't quite know who he's dealing with. This light that shines, that knocks him down to the ground that humbles him to the point where he's blinded by the light. And I love that line, that although he opens his eyes, he can't see. And how many times have you argued with someone who seemed to have their eyes open, but they just can't see? And of course, more irony in the story. This man who came to take Jews bound as heretics to Jerusalem, now must be led by the hand because he can't see to go into the city. And this place where he thought would be a rich 
harvest for his heresy hunting becomes the very place where he will discover the salvation of God. Shall I repeat that? This group of people that he thought were a group of heretics ends up being the very people where he will find the salvation of God. That'll mess with your mind. So he gets to Damascus, of course, and he's three days without sight, which you can't hear, help but hear echoes that Christ was raised in the third day. Not only that, but in the story of God calling Ananias to go to Saul's side, there are ironies upon irony. The Lord comes to Ananias in a vision, and he says, well, I want you to go to the street that is called Straight, a straight street. Jesus said his way is straight. And not only that, he's to go to a guy's house by the name of Judas. That doesn't sound like a good idea. And yet, it gets worse. Not only is he going to go to a guy's house whose name is Judas, the famous betrayer of Jesus, on a straight path, he's going to find this guy by the name of Saul from Tarsus, who's praying. And so God moves heaven and earth to take this person who was once a severe threat to these Christians in Damascus with their newfound faith in Jesus. And this man who's just minding his own business and God appears to him in a, in a vision and says, you need to go to this house because I'm going to use you to bring sight to his eyes. And sure enough, he goes and finds out that Saul is there. And I find it a, um, gosh, in an endearing moment in verse 17 when Ananias shows up and Saul is there and he says, probably words that fell from his lip he's never expected, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Is Jesus who appeared to you, told me to come to you. And he lays hands on him, and the scales fall from his eyes. We use that as expression today. Scales fall from that. It comes from this story. And immediately Saul not only regains his physical sight, it's quite obvious he has regained, ironically, his spiritual sight. Because the last irony, he goes into the synagogue, not looking for heretics, but behold, becoming the heretic. And tells these Jewish people, Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> and don't you know the members of that synagogue folded their arms and go, whoa, who could have seen this coming? And this is the guy that we knew he was coming to kind of clean house for us. And now he's up there telling us that this Jesus is the Son of God. You can't find, I think, a better picture of reconciliation than right here. And it's no wonder reconciliation was a major hallmark of Paul and his ministry. What I want to do is quickly look through this story through the eyes of Saul, Paul, and see why God is at work and how he's doing what he's doing. And then I quickly want to look at this story through the eyes of Ananias 
and see if we can't learn something of what it means to be a people who turn enemies into friends. First, have you ever been so convinced that you're right and you find out you're wrong? This happens to me on a daily basis. And it's getting worse. We'll recount some story. I mean, it could be as innocent and innocuous as some story, you know. And I'll say, this is what happened. And the keeper of our family history, my beautiful wife, Sherry, will say, that's not what happened. And then once we kind of work through the details of it, I end up finding out, yeah, why is that always that? Why is it like that? That she's most, man, she's right almost all the time. It's just hard to live with someone who's so right. But see, I work with the presumption <laughs> that I have an infallible view of things. I don't know what it is with me, but I think, you know, that my view of the past or my view of the present, uh, you know, is infallible. And what can make it worse, by the way, is if your infallible view of things, your infallible opinion, is somehow you believed an expression of the will of God. Let me tell you, that's a dangerous combination. Why was Saul persecuting Jews? Why was he doing this? I mean, he looks like, you know, a malcontent. He looks like basically an irritable guy. But when you read his letters like in Philippians 3, you see him say, you know, by the way, before I met Christ, I was so convinced I was right, I was blameless with God. So why was he so convinced he was right? Why was he blameless? Here's why. He had heard about Jesus, and Jesus, you know, was not one of those Jews that kept all the rules, which for a Pharisee who saw was, is a very dangerous thing. You know, rule keepers are easily suspicious of rule breakers. So Saul, the Pharisee, had heard about this rule breaker, Jesus, who seemed to just cast, you know, caution to the wind and just do basically impulsively what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And so it was really frustrating to a guy like Saul, the Pharisee, to hear that they were now Jews who were following this way of rebellion, this way of violating the law. And by the way, if you want to know how bad it gets, read Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stephen stands up and delivers this blistering critique of the temple and of the people who take care of the temple and those who claim to keep the law but they don't. And what do they do? These righteous people who couldn't stand to hear this man Stephen critique them so viciously in their mind. What'd they do to the guy? They silence him, just like they silenced Jesus. You know, like roaches, they're having a hard time taking care of these miscreants, these rebels. They thought that Jesus finally got his comeuppance. They thought he finally got what was due to him, that God finally took care of the matter when he was crucified. Because not only had he provoked, evidently, the religious leaders, he seemed to provoke the Roman authorities. You can't go around first century Rome claiming to be king and get away with it. Caesar didn't like that. So, 
They were convinced when he hung, hangs on a cross that he is a false messiah. He's indeed a heretic. He is cursed by God because the law says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There it is. You can't argue with that. Says it in the law. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There he is, cursed by God. I mean, even nature itself seemed to indicate the same. You know, the sky grew dark and the ground shook, and it was just like, you know, this is an ominous, horrible thing. And so these people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, were convinced that God's on their side because there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah, the hero, because not only did he violate the law, but God finally made him pay for it. And to have these silly Jewish brothers and sisters who were getting caught up in this way, this way of rebellion, was too much for Saul, the rule keeper, the Pharisee. So he decides, after seeing how stubborn they could be, he was there to witness the stoning of Stephen, he was going to take it upon himself as these Christians fled like roaches from Jerusalem and they started landing in certain towns around the area, he was going to go and find them and stomp out the Jesus movement. Imagine his surprise. On the road to Damascus, he's almost there. He's convinced as he's on the way that he's indeed on a righteous campaign, a righteous way to do the work of God. Imagine how shocked he must have been when he confronts face-to-face a cursed Messiah who's now glorified. Kind of hard to argue with that. Worse than that, he can't see a thing anymore. Indeed. So just, you know, just as an aside, maybe I'm relishing this too much, but that should be caution to all of us, right? If you ever get to the point where you're so convinced of your infallible opinion, especially when it comes to doing the work of God that leads to the persecution of people and your righteous campaign, you might remember a man by the name of Saul, who Jesus caused him to fall to his knees and Saul, his world was upside down. I mean, if you think you're doing the very will of God and then all of the sudden, you got to go this way. That is called conversion. So as I can just, I, I sympathize with him. Imagine he's just stupefied and he's in Damascus and he's a feeble man now that can't even make his way around. And he's at this guy's house and, and he's been praying and he won't eat, we're told. He won't drink. It's been three days He can't see, and the darkness of that moment must have been so hard for him, as dark as the moment for the disciples between Friday and Sunday. Now look at it from Ananias' perspective. (laughs) We don't know much about this man. You know, he just kind of shows up in the narrative. He was obviously a follower of the way, and all of a sudden God gives a vision to him and says, hey, I want you to go to this house since on straight street and go to Judas's house and then you find Saul of Tarsus and I want you to pray for him.
I think of the Damascus Christians who knew he was coming. We can tell because he says, what worry about this guy? I mean, he, he's, he is taking, he's taking extreme measures to, like us to persecute, to kill people like this. And don't you know when the word got out that Saul was coming for their town, that they all gathered together in, in a huddle and began to pray, oh God, oh God, please, please spare us. What are we going to do if he shows up? Are we going to rat on one another? Are we going to, you know, are, are we going to lie about who we are? Could you imagine the difficulty? Because it says in, at the beginning of this chapter that Paul's not just taking away men. He's taking away women, too. What did they pray for? I, I don't know. But I can tell you probably the one thing they didn't pray for, who would have expected this? God comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go to Saul's, I want you to go to see him and help him see because he is a chosen vessel of mine to preach the gospel of the Gentiles and to suffer much. And it's no wonder Ananias protests. <laughs> Lord, I've heard, we've heard about this guy. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. And so sure enough, God uses Ananias to bring sight to Saul's eyes. And Saul found in that company of this little company of Christians a people who would reveal the reconciliation of God. So what did they learn? What did Ananias learn? Maybe it's a lesson we need to learn. No one lies beyond the grace of God. No one. I sometimes find myself praying for the, the most dastardly rascals. Not members of this church, I mean. But you know, I mean, it's the most dastardly rascals you hear about. And, and I have to tell you, sometimes I feel like a fool, you know, that God would save them. Someone is hateful and as vindictive and spiteful as a guy like Saul. But this story comes crashing into my heart and reminding me, here it is, every heart has an open door and God can find it. Now sometimes he has to knock you down <laughs> and sometimes we need that, but I'm hoping we'll be encouraged to know that it doesn't matter how bad the rancor gets in our social and political discourse, it doesn't matter how the dividing lines are drawn and you're an enemy and you're not, it doesn't matter which politician we've already blackballed and said he's hopeless or she cannot help us. Our ultimate goal is to see people, no matter who they are, come to Jesus Christ, right? That's our ultimate goal. And nobody lies beyond the grace of God. If he can turn around a man like Saul, if he can save a man like Saul, then he can save any of us, and that's what Paul said. So brothers and sisters, keep praying for that one that you think just lies beyond the mercy of God. You just keep praying. Because our God is a God that Paul says will do above, exceeding beyond anything we could ask or think. 
And don't you know the Damascus Christians, when they read that in Paul's letter, said, amen, Saul. We never thought you would be the one that would write a letter like that. Second thing that I think Saul and Ananias learned is and it's something I've repeated many times and it shows up so many places. You can't be a Christian by yourself. You can't. Isn't it interesting what God did? I mean, God could have caused the scales to fall from Saul's eyes when he wanted it. God could have, didn't have to involve Ananias, but why did God do this? Why did he take Ananias, this courageous man who wasn't sure this was a good idea, <laughs> and bring him into the presence of Saul so that he could see with his own eyes, indeed, God can turn the heart, the most cold-hearted, murderous, bloodthirsty man, he can turn him into a vessel of the good news of Jesus Christ like that. You see what God's doing. He's taking a guy like Ananias, and he's taking a guy like Saul, and he's putting them together and says, this is how healing happens. It's the body of Christ taking care of one another. It's the body of Christ praying for one another. It's the body of Christ welcoming the outsider, the outcast, the one we all hate. It's the body of Christ showing, indeed, that the love of God is eternal. His mercy is everlasting, for we are living testaments to the new covenant of the grace of God that can overcome every sin and every incredibly terrible life. He can change you. He can change me. He can change every single one of us. And this is why we know we need one another. For we are the reconciliation of God. We are. Let's pray. I marvel, Lord Jesus, what you did here. It gives us great courage and great hope that no heart lies beyond your grace. Paul was seized by your grace. He could never get over that, that he was once an enemy and you made him a friend. That light that shines in the darkness shone in his heart and gave him this ministry of reconciliation that we have been entrusted with. So forgive us for living in a world where people are quick to make enemies, discard and marginalize and even hate people that we don't agree with. And for most of us who simply just trying to do the best we can, we're just trying to live faithful to you and we find out there are people who will end up hating us we didn't provoke this. Yeah, we know we want to be faithful to you. So may we look upon our enemies with the everlasting love of Christ. And may we turn to one another for encouragement, help, and hope as we lay hands and bring about healing and the scales fall from our eyes and we look into the glorious face of Christ. the one who saved us, reconciled us, and redeems us, and makes our life worth living. 
thank you for this good news in Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.